All right, with that, uh, let's jump to Hebrews. If you have a Bible with you this morning, Hebrews chapter 10, if you need to borrow a Bible, you can raise your hand real high and the guys will be happy to let you borrow one. You can turn over in your electronic devices as well. We're going to be looking at verse 31 through 34, so it's kind of the next little section um, here before we get to the end of chapter 10. I entitled our message this morning, Tests of Genuine Faith. So again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31 through 34, Tests of Genuine Faith. And if you're there with me, I'm going to invite you to stand as we honor the Lord and His Word. We read verse 31, and really that verse ties, I would say, even more so to the previous section, but we didn't get to it last Sunday. And we're told it it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now the writer then has this somewhat of a contrast, verse 32, he says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you came to the knowledge of truth. You endured a great struggle with sufferings. And he says, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. All right, so it's just that section. We're going to camp there and unpack these verses together. Uh, but let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning, the blessing to gather here, a beautiful day that you've given us here in Okinawa, Lord. And, and Father, even as we sang earlier, just thinking about that, the teaching, really, Jesus, that you gave that likened a a person who would hear your word and then to heed your word, to hear what you had to say and then to apply and to do it like as a wise man who would build his house upon a rock so that when the, the storms of life came, when that faith was tested, he endured, his life endured. Lord, we want to be like that. We don't want to be like the foolish person who would hear your word and then just ignore it and, and just kind of leave it here and go on our merry way. You likened it to a person who would build their house on sand. And when the same storms come, the storms of life, the difficulties, Lord, you characterize it great was the fall. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that you would allow us to have ears to hear, heart to obey. Lord, even the willingness to be challenged by the things that we hear and And Lord, to apply these things, we don't want to just hear them and then leave them. Lord, we want to put handles on these truths and walk out with them and and live in these truths. And so, Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you speak to our hearts, we pray. And we thank you for it, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment, say hello to someone, and then you can have a seat. Years ago, I was in California for a, a conference, a pastor's conference in Murrieta, and gone by to a nearby mall for, for dinner, and 
So I was walking through the mall, I saw a store, and uh, the store is advertising, we buy gold. And so I was curious. I walked in and asked how much. At that time, I had a gold wedding ring. So I, I was curious. I was like, I wonder how much I can get for this. So I, I, I gave the guy my wedding ring, and, uh, and he did these series of tests. He looked at it under some different light, and then he looked at it through like a magnifying glass, and he asked if he could scratch it. He scratched it a little and poured some liquid on it. I, I, I think it was acid. It bubbled up a little bit. And so then after a, a series of tests, he says, okay, yeah, it's real gold. Uh, I'll give you 150 bucks for it. And uh, it was more than I had bought it for, so I, sold, I hawked my wedding ring right there in the mall. Uh, I, I walked down a few stores and got a bean and cheese burrito, and then, uh, and then I ordered a new ring uh, from Amazon. So I have this awesome silicone ring for five bucks. <laughs> I, got, I got permission from my wife first, by the way, so... Tomorrow, tomorrow's our 24-year anniversary, so, yeah. Still on my honeymoon, even though I hawked my wedding ring. She's still good, so. This section of Hebrews uh, speaks about tests and, and the testing of something that's precious and, 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 and valuable to us. It's our faith in Christ. And, and the author is reminding the, the reader, the, the Hebrews, uh, the Jewish Christians, that that the truths of Scripture, the things that he has been uh, sharing with them up to this point, they're not just theological concepts. They're not just uh, a, a class in doctrine that they can kind of debate and ponder and have a discussion over a cup of coffee. It's good to do that. Don't get me wrong. We want to know what truth is, but but. It is to understand that the gospel in itself and the truths that we read about and learn and study together, that they are the very means in which then we live and we breathe and, and we endure and thrive in a real and messy and chaotic and just our everyday life. It's where the rubber meets the road, if you will. And so this morning we're going to consider four areas that tested the Hebrew Christians in their lives. Four areas that we can look at what happened in their life and perhaps use as a grid, as a metric for our own life and to see how our faith is tested at times and, and really what does God want them to do with those particular tests. So I draw your attention back to verse 31 where we again read that's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And for those who have refused, rejected, denied the gift of grace that God offers, and for those who then remain in sin, it, it is a fearful thing. It will be a very fearful and terrible and horrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a, it's a very sobering declaration of truth. And we realize from this verse, is it, in one sense, is a, the bookend of the previous thoughts that God doesn't play. And, and the internal state of our souls is not something that anybody should take lightly. You know, I have friends who make jokes about how they're going to party when they get to hell. And, and it grieves me. And as best as I can and as lovingly as I can, and yet, you know, bold in that to explain to them, listen, it's not a party. Uh, hell isn't a punchline for jokes. It's a real place. 
And God absolutely does not want anyone to go there. I mean, that is why Jesus came. But when we read this verse, again, there's a sobering uh, truth to it, but also there's a comforting truth, because for those who have come into the family of faith, for those who have received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, uh, we are secure in God's hands. We don't fall into the hands of God. We're held firm in the hands of God. But we also need to understand that being held firm in the hands of God does not mean that we won't experience struggles and sufferings and trials and hurts and pains on this side of eternity. And so the writer, in a sense, transitions to that, to say, don't, don't misunderstand what it means to be held in the hands of God, to be in the family of Christ. Oh, we're still going to have some bumps along the way. We're still going to have some rough roads that we have to travel. And so he then in verse 32 says, you know, but recall the former days. You remember? He says, then after you were illuminated, the idea is that you were enlightened, you, you came to the knowledge of truth, it's, it's a call to remember, it's a call to recount, remember before, what, remembering what time before? Not, not before you came to Christ, but after you came to Christ, after you were illuminated. That, that Greek word for illuminated, it's the word photizo. It's where we get the English word photon from, or you know, photo. And, and it just simply means to be enlightened, to come into the light. You were, we were once in darkness, and now we've come into the light. You know, the Bible describes our salvation in so many wonderful ways, all these very uh, descriptive pictures. We've been born again. We've been adopted. We've been rescued. And we've been PCS'd out of the kingdom of darkness and into God's kingdom of light. And we're told that we're then children of light and we're to walk in the light as He is in the light and we dwell in the kingdom of light. And so this verse is speaking to that fact that remember after you came to Christ, specifically, what are we to remember? How you endured a great struggle with suffering. It is to remember the tough times as Christians, as followers of Christ. Now, hard times and tough days are common to everyone. No, no one is exempt. As I just mentioned, we, we, we must not think that once we come to faith in Jesus Christ, that all of a sudden God says, okay, you're not going to have any problems anymore. You're not going to fight with your spouse anymore. You're not going to have issues with your kids anymore. You're not going to have problems with family or your work. Or... No, that's not the case at all. I remember in my early days, soon after coming to faith in Christ, they were hard days. My, my mom and my siblings, they, we had the same mom but a different dad, and they were very young because of circumstances with my stepdad who left them. All of a sudden, they wake up one morning, he's gone, cleaned out the bank account. They didn't know where he was. We ended up finding out that he had moved and was living with some other lady and crossed the country and it was just a very difficult season, and, and so 
we had to make this decision to basically move my mom and my um, half-brother and sister and, and, and come and live with me and Christy. And we were, we were newly married at the time. And just under our own stress of trying to make our ends meet, now trying to take care of, uh, of another household, my mom who you know, was dealing with her own hurts and pains, who had been abused for a season, and, and my, you know, my siblings. And, and I remember just getting, it was just so hard that I literally was like, I quit, God, I quit. And I took my Bible and I put it in the closet, <laughs> put it on the top shelf, and I'm like, I'm done. My life as a Christian, soon after I came to faith, it, it didn't get easier. It got harder and more stressful. I didn't understand it, not, not, not at first. God's so good and He's so gracious and saw us through that season. It might be argued that, that we should expect that we will experience the hurts of this life, just like everybody else does. But even beyond that, the, the worst of the world, that it will be directed to you because you're a Christian, because you name the name of Jesus. And the Lord has made this, in a sense, a promise to us. In John chapter 15, he says, if the world hates you, understand that it, it keep in mind, it hated me first. But if you belong to the world, if you look like the world and smell like the world and act like the world, well, they would love you as your own. But because you don't, because you, you name the name of Christ, because you've chosen to follow me, you can expect that the world is going to hate you just like it hates me. We're told that those who desire to live godly will experience, will suffer persecution. That's usually not you know, a, a screensaver verse that we like to put on our, you know, the end of our emails or make a bumper sticker out. Right? That's not the verse that you know, is on your bathroom wall. <laughs> and yet still a, a truth that God declares to us. God doesn't keep us from trouble, doesn't promise uh, exemption from trouble always, but the promise of the Lord is that He will always be with us in and through the storms of life and the troubles we experience. And so here the writer is prompting them, remember those days? Remember when you came to faith and, and yet you did suffer? You endured a great struggle with suffering? You know, it's good for us to remember. It's good for us to recall, remind ourselves of the goodness of God, even as we sang earlier, and have, in a sense, our own testimony of the faithfulness of the Lord. I haven't done it recently. There's a season of my life where I, I you know, I would journal. And, and I'm encouraged by my, my own journaling. Sometimes I'll go back and read and reread what, what, you know, God was doing in my life in a different season and some of the things that I was going through and the worries that I had and these, you know, big prayer requests and how God has been faithful all these years. You know, God, I believe, knows that we're prone to forget His faithfulness. And so it's good for us to tell ourselves to be, you know, reminding ourselves of the goodness of the Lord. Even when the children of Israel were going through the wilderness, God told them over and over again, listen, when you get to the land that I've given you, it's going to be good. It's going to be awesome. But do not forget me, he says. 
Do not forget how I took care of you through this season. In Deuteronomy 8.11, he says, Be careful not to forget the Lord your God by failing to keep his commandments and ordinances and statutes, which I'm giving you this day. Of course, that's Moses speaking. The psalmist declare in Psalm 103, verse 2, Blessed be the Lord, or excuse me, blessed the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his blessings. And so it's good for us. It's good for our soul to recall and recount the goodness of God in our lives, to count our blessings. I would say especially in our darker days, especially in our tougher times. The Lord has been so, so good. The Lord has been so, so faithful. And so it's good for us to remember God's, his past record, his, his past faithfulness. And because one of the things that it does, it, it encourages us, and, and I would even say it enables us. You know, it, it, it provides this reminder that we can then endure on our present and even future hardships. The, the God who saw you through your last difficulty and the one before that and the one before that and the one before that, listen, he, he hasn't forgotten you. You haven't uh, used up all of his goodness and grace. And we understand, too, that what the Hebrew Christians were going through wasn't small, it wasn't minor. The writer says, you endured a great struggle. And he adds then, with sufferings. Now the writer doesn't give us any details as to what their pain or their problems were. But whatever they were, they were distressing. They were hard. They were dreadful. You know, to use today's vernacular, they were on the struggle bus, speeding down a mountain, filled with potholes and no brakes. That's, you know, that's the idea. And yet, they endured through it. They got through it. One of the ways that God demonstrates His goodness and, and demonstrates, if you will, the trustworthiness of, of faith in Christ is by the tests that we will go through. I'll just make a general statement, really, that, that all suffering and, and, and struggles that we experience, they, they are designed to test the genuineness of our faith. And it's a good thing. And we tend to trust things that have been tested. We, we tend to trust things that have been approved. I don't know about you, but I'm skeptical if something hasn't been tested. If I, I'm not sure if, if, if this can you know, hold uh, or even hold me. And several years ago, uh, I had this it was a medical, it was a, I had kidney stones. I didn't know it was kidney stones at the time. I just thought I'm going to die. And so I've shared this story before. I called in Christy, and I'm like, I'm going to say my goodbyes, calling the kids, you know. I didn't know what this pain was. It was horrible. To the point where she called the paramedics, and the paramedics showed up. As we were living in Okinawa City, and so here comes the Japanese paramedics, and, and I you know, could barely get out of the bed and walk down the stairs. It's just every step was just more painful, more painful. And when they showed up in their version of a gurney, it, it looked like a skateboard. 
you know, just elevated on these little, this little frame like an ironing board. I'm like, no way. <laughs> I looked at that thing, I'm like, no way. And they're like, you know, kind of get on. And I'm like, no. So I, I, I just put one leg on it and one cheek, and I kind of just scooted like a scooter. I was like, I didn't trust that thing. I'm going to have kidney stones and a broken back. I don't want that thing. We, we trust things that have been tested. And God wants us to know that we can put the full weight of our life on Him. And how do we know that? Well, guess what? It's these, little, it's these tests that come our way. It's these trials and struggles and troubles to remind us God is good. He will hold us up. He will see you through. Put the full weight of your life and your burdens you know, we're invited to cast our burdens to Him because He cares for us. In the fullness of your struggles, in the fullness of your pain, in the fullness of your worries, God will see us through. You know, understand, church family, that God, see, He allows these things. He permits these things. I even say there are times where God will direct these things in our life, ordain them for us. And we find examples of that throughout the gospel. You remember the time where after Jesus had fed the 5,000, that crowd was like, this is our guy, we're going to make him our leader. And Jesus, we, we read in the gospels, both in it's Mark 6 and I think Matthew 10, and where he sends the disciples into a boat and he tells them, hey, go to the other side and if you remember the account, they, they encounter this huge storm. It's like this, this typhoon that just shows up. And Jesus would come walking to them on the water, if you remember the account. But remember, they freaked out, we're going to perish. And the test for them wasn't for that they would fail, but that their faith would flourish, that it would grow, that they would come to trust Jesus even when they didn't see Jesus. And the fact that he, I believe, you know, he knew what was coming and he sends them into it. And so the Lord does that in our life too. I think one part of it is to reveal the areas that do need strengthening, the areas that need attention. And this summer we... I think we only had one pseudo-typhoon that I can think of, right? Kind of parked, you remember that one? It's kind of parked off for a little bit. In years past, you guys have been around for a while, you know, we've had different seasons of typhoons and different intensities and frequency. And a couple of years ago, we, we had a, a string of typhoons that just kind of seemed to come every weekend. <laughs> And, and one of those storms that came, it was a pretty good-sized storm, and we did what we could to, you know, here in Okinawa, we have our own word we made up, right? Typhoon eyes, where you prepare your house, you know. We, so we had to prepare the building, tape the windows, and do what we could. And, and, uh, and so after this big storm came and passed, we came into the building, and, and the entryway, right, when we walked in, the whole thing was flooded, and some areas on the second floor, and, and so we realized, oh, man, that... Those are areas that we need to fortify. And so the fact that there was 
damage and leakage, it, it showed us what needed to be reinforced, what, what needed attention, what needed strengthening. And so that storm then helped us prepare better for the next storms and the larger storms that came. And, and God does the same thing in our life. You know, the Lord will use our, our trials and troubles, our storms, if you will, that we go through. It, it gets... You know, it reveals areas where we need to be strengthened. It reveals areas of weakness in us, you know, our character, perhaps in our communication with our, our loved ones, areas where we need accountability, areas where we need to surrender. And gang, that's a good thing. So when we find ourselves in these type of struggles with sufferings, understand that God, he, you know, he uses those things to strengthen us. And it, and it, does, it provides a test for us. Not, not a test that we'd fail, but a, a test, if you will, that, that will be strengthened and encouraged. Ears that need attention. Maybe you've heard it said before that you know, people, and I even say Christians, you know, are, are like tea bags. You put us in hot water and then you'll see what comes out. Flip over to 1 Peter. Keep your finger or the bulletin in Hebrews 11, and the next book is James. and That's where we're going to go next in our studies, by the way. And then it's 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but it's 1 Peter chapter 1. Such a great letter as well. We read at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. So a lot of really what even the writer Hebrews has told us. You who are kept by the power of God, through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then he says, In this you greatly rejoice. In what, Peter? Though now for a little while, if need be, the idea as God purposes, you have been grieved. Now God's a realist. It's not that we're, you know, like, oh great, I'm going through a struggle and trial. Oh, happy day. Oh, there's times where we grieve. It's hard. We suffer. We cry. We're frustrated. You've been grieved by various trials. That the genuineness of your faith, here it is, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than your wedding ring you hawked at the mall, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're grieved by it, and yet at the same time, there's this kind of contradiction. It says, Peter says, we can greatly rejoice. It's a heavenly perspective to know, oh, God's working in my life. The Lord is faithful. Yes, I'm grieved. Yes, I'm bummed. Yes, it's hard. But again, we realize that the purpose of our tests or to strengthen our faith, to purify our faith. And so they endured this great struggle at suffering. And verse 33, the writer says, partly, so there's a part of how they struggle, partly while you were made a spectacle, 
both by reproaches and tribulations, that's a part of it, and then partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. And so they experienced these hardships you know, in different ways, in different places. And the first of those places, they're told, the writer says, you were made a spectacle. The idea is that they, they were put on public display. Everyone could see. They didn't go through these hardships privately. They didn't suffer privately in their homes, or they didn't keep it undisclosed to others. No, their pain was public. All the neighbors knew the family drama. Their family knew the family drama. And as we mentioned before, a good part of it was because they had come to faith in Christ. That became the catalyst for why they were experiencing what they were experiencing. They wanted to live for truth. They didn't want to live according to old tradition or live according to the world. They wanted to follow the Lord. And so what happened? They got the cold shoulder. When everyone else hung out for parties, they didn't get invited. You know, they got the stink eye at the grocery store. Their kids were bullied at school. The whispers and the condescending stares and people who were once considered friends were avoiding them. I think one of the most difficult trials that we can go through is when we are tested in our social circles. The areas that we frequent. And yet the Lord again allows those things to happen. That struggles in our social circles can... What does it reveal for us? Well, it can reveal where our source of identity derives. So often it's... It, it's in that arena that tests where, you know, it shows us, it will reveal where, where are you going for, for validation? Where do you believe, or what do you really believe, uh, where your worth comes from? Now, God has created us to be social. We talked about before that, especially as Christians, no, no one's called to be the Lone Ranger, we're more like the three musketeers, remember? We need community. But the danger is that we can make our social circles and our social standing, or perhaps for some of you, you, you have a platform, you have a, a sphere of influence, that where you frequent and the title or the rank that you're known by, or maybe even online. This, like we have to be careful because that can become an idol. That can become where we, you know, we find all of our uh, fulfillment in, or we seek fulfillment in those things. And so we can be tempted to care more about than what others think about me in those circles. Our likes and followers and shares and care more about that than we do, you know, us being faithful followers of Christ. And these believers proved true. They, they stayed on course even after they suffered shame and ridicule and mockery for their faith in Christ. 
think in our day, it, it comes often in the form of being banned, right? It, it comes in the form of being unfriended or canceled or being maligned in social media. Then it bleeds out to maybe in the circles that you hang out, the group of friends that maybe you used to you know, do things with. Again, it hurts. No one likes to be shunned, right? No one likes to be gossiped about or, or denigrated. And yet, when, when that happens, it becomes a test for us. It becomes an opportunity for us to make an evaluation of, okay, well, where am I really finding my value from? Where, where am I really looking for my sense of being and, and who gets to determine what my worth is? And the Bible says that the fear of man is a snare. And so we, we have to be careful. And it's, and it's in those arenas when we are tested that way, it reveals, again, a hard truth. Because sometimes we realize, oh, we have given a, a lot, you know, a lot of, of worth and value in what someone else is saying about me than what God says about me. We begin to care more about those things. And so that trial will expose what we love or what we live for, what we pursue from the world. And so he says, you know, you suffered the struggle and these, the platform that you had, the, the social circles that you were in, you became a spectacle. Everyone saw it. You went through these reproaches and tribulations, so things that happened outwardly and inwardly. And then he also adds, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. And so it was not only they were going through it, but their neighbors and their friends were going through it. And, and so they came alongside those who were being mistreated and suffering in that way. And notice the phrasing, it says, and you became companions of those. The, the implication is that they, they, they moved towards that direction. And so here, here's how I, I phrase it, if you're taking note, the third thing where we're tested. We, how we respond to others in need will often re reveal how we value relationships as a whole. Do you remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? Jesus tells this story about, and I'll just do my paraphrase, this, this dude who got jumped, and this band of thugs jumped this homeboy, and they stole all his stuff, and they beat him up, and they left him half dead. And he's lying on the road. And then, and then Jesus talks about how these other guys came and passed him, and when they saw him, they actually went to the other, they, they were on the same side of the street and it says, and they walked the other way. Do you remember who, who were the guys who passed this poor dude who got beat up? Anybody remember for a thousand points? I heard it, go ahead. Yeah, it was a priest. A priest and a Levite. It's the religious people. Isn't that shocking? I mean, Jesus even tells the story, it, it was those who you would think should have ran to this guy's help. Who would it be expected? And yet the idea is that they could care less. They just cared more about themselves. 
And so they ignored, they abandoned, they, they had nothing to do with that guy. And what happens in our heart when we see others who are in need? Others who are struggling? See, when some of these folks were going through their seasons of storms, when they were struggling, they had brothers and sisters in Christ who, who jumped in the boat with them, if you will. They ran into the fire. They became companions of those who were so treated. I don't know about you, but I want friends like that. And then yet, again, I have to be a friend like that. You know, to, to walk with someone through difficulty, willingly. My closest friends aren't necessarily the ones that I clown with all the time and laugh with all the time. Oh, I do that. Talk sports and... But often, you know, the ones who are the closest to me are the ones that I've cried with and bared my soul with and shared my frustrations with. They've seen me at my worst and my ugliest and yet loved me anyways and, you know, didn't judge me, didn't bail on me. It's the people who... Friends are the people who, who know you really well and, and love you anyways. And so it's good, you know, we, I, I'm challenged by this. It, in one sense, on two, two sides of the same coin, I guess. On one side, it's to think, to think about who our friends are. Think hard about who your friends are. The people that you have invited into that space of your life. And then also to think about what type of friend you are to others. Especially how you would respond for those who are hurting, and I would add specifically hurting within the body of Christ. Because we want to be, and we want people around us who will stick with us, and we want to stick with people through thick and thin, through the storms of life. Even those, you know, we're not always going to get along all the time. We're not always going to agree with everything. Man, I don't want anybody to bail on me in the first sign of trouble. Reminds me of that story, those two guys are camping. They get up in the morning, you know, they're making breakfast, and all of a sudden here comes this big black bear. You guys heard that story before? And the one guy begins to tie his running shoes on, sneakers. And the other friend's like, what are you doing? Like, you can't outrun this bear. And the one friend says, yeah, I know, I just got to outrun you. you know, we don't want to be like that, right? The Bible says that we're to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. Galatians 6 says that we might carry each other's burdens or help bear each other's burdens. And in this way, we fulfill the law of Christ. And so these guys, they suffered themselves. Everyone saw. They went through these struggles and then also, they became friends. They became companions of those who were being treated that way. And in verse 34, he says, For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you had a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. So now here the writer makes it very personal. He says, 
And he even attests to the fact that they helped him. They were concerned about him. They had compassion on him and his chains. Now, because of that phrase, some think that, oh, this is, this is alluding to perhaps that you know, the writer is the Apostle Paul. He says very similar phrases to the Philippians. In the other letters that he wrote, remember he wrote several of them from prison. He's in chains. And so perhaps, again, he doesn't identify himself. That's unusual for Paul because he usually will say, hey, it's Paul, guys. So it could be, we don't really know for sure, but we, what we can say for sure is that despite their own struggle, despite the, the things that they were going through, they themselves extended care to somebody else. The Bible says, don't just look out for yourself, but also look out for the needs, the concerns, the cares of others. I mean, it's one thing to extend help and care and concern and resources when when you're good and you have extra there's a surplus but how about when you have little in your own tank how about when you're taking hits and sometimes that in itself becomes a test for us that am i am i going to go completely inward Oh, I'm hurting, so now I, I'm going to just focus on me and not worry about anybody else. When God directs you and me to give to others, when you and I have little, what will we do? Are we going to trust the Lord, even when we have little? And be willing to say, all right, Lord, I have little, but I'm going to do what you've called me to do. Remember, sorry, you meet some of my notes. I just thought of it. I think it's 1 Kings. You're going to have to check my address. I think it's 17. It's the account of Elijah. The first part of that is he goes by the brook Cherith and he has to wait there. And remember, birds bringing him Big Macs and dries up. God says, okay, now I want you to go to this next duty station I have for you. And he goes down to this place called Zarephath. And, and God says, I want you to minister to this, this widow, single mom. And because of the drought, we encounter, she, when, he, when Elijah meets her, she's picking up, you know, she's gathering sticks. Again, it's my paraphrase, so I apologize in that. So he, he approaches her and basically says, hey, <laughs> uh, will you make me some cupcakes? Will you give me something to drink and make me some cupcakes? And and she's like, I, don't, I, only got a, I only have enough for me and my kid. And, and really, it's all we have, and then we're, we're done. Like, got nothing left. But then Elijah challenges her and says, no, like, if you do this for me, like, the, Lord, the Lord will see you through. And, and she had this tremendous faith. She's like, okay. Like, I, like I, I'd be like, hey, buddy, get your own. What happens in our hearts when the Lord says, I know that you have a little, but I want you to, to be a blessing to others. I want you to extend yourself. Are we going to trust the Lord? I am convicted. I am convicted because <laughs> I know I can be so selfish with my time. I can be so selfish with my energy. 
my resources, my attention, my money. You know, I don't get it. It's my, you know, mine. It's not really mine. Like, Lord, forgive me. Now, don't get me wrong, because it's not that God has called us to be indiscriminate and just giving ourselves away to any and everybody who asks. No, boundaries are healthy and limits are healthy. But we also can't use it you know, as an excuse to allow, the, if you will, the pendulum to swing the other way. We're, we're just selfish. The Bible says we're to die to self. Jesus says, recording in Matthew 10, if you... If you cling to your life, another version says, if you try to save your life, you try to preserve your life, you're going to lose it. You're going to suffer the loss of the fullness of blessings and all that God wants to give you. But if you, if you give your life away, if you give up your life for the sake of Christ, if you give up your life for the things that God has called you to do, Jesus says, you'll find it. You'll enjoy it. It'll be life abundant. A couple weeks ago, we, we talked about Barnabas, this person we meet in the book of Acts, and how he took a chance on the apostle Paul. When Paul first came to faith, remember, he was like a terrorist. People were like, no way, we're not going to deal with that guy. And yet Barnabas was the one, and, and, and his, son, you know, his name means the son of encouragement. It's a great namesake. So he goes and he encourages Paul and he encourages the church. And our point was, hey, let's be like Barnabases, right? Well, there's another character in the Bible that Paul interacted with, and his name is Demas. You guys familiar with that guy? We don't know a whole lot about him. We're, when we're first introduced to him, we're introduced to him as, as a brother and a, and a fellow worker with Paul. Demas is with Paul, and he's doing the ministry and so it seems like he started off well, but the last time we read about Demas is Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.10, and he says, Hey, Demas bailed on me. Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. And so Demas was more in love with the world, more in love with himself and his selfish pursuits that he bailed on Paul and he bailed on the others and he bailed on that relationship. And so our encouragement is, yeah, let's be like Barnabas, don't be a Demas. So one of the ways that God encourages us that we can get even through our own trials is then to help others get through theirs. To bless others. And it seems so counterintuitive. And yet that is the way of Scripture. You want to go up, then go down. You want to be great, then be the least. You want to be filled, then give out. You want to be blessed, be a blessing. You want to be lifted up, lift others up. There's this supernatural principle of the kingdom, right, where God fills when we give. And we, can't, we cannot outgive the Lord. Jesus himself models that in his humanity. In John chapter 4, we read the account where he, we're, we're told he's tired. He had a long day. He comes by this well, and we're told that he sits down, being wearied from the day. 
The rest of the disciples, again, my paraphrase, they're hungry. They're like, hey, we're going to go to, uh, into town to Family Mart. You want anything? And so they end up leaving him. And in the meantime, this lady comes to get water from the well. At an unusual time, it's the afternoon. And we kind of realize through their dialogue why. She wasn't um, exactly in great standing in the community. And so they have this exchange, and that's another lesson. But what happens is when the disciples come back and they see Jesus, they're kind of shocked, well, they're shocked that he's talking to this lady, and he ministers to her, but, but when they're kind of, when, when, it, when they're done, they say to him, hey, we, we got some food for you. And Jesus replies to them, I have food that you know not of. And their response is, again, my paraphrase, oh, man, he was holding out. You have like a power bar he didn't tell us about? They didn't understand. And so Jesus says, no, listen, my food is to do the will of the Father and complete his work. And the idea being there that when we're obedient to the Lord, there's, there's a sustaining grace that we get to experience. There's a, there's a fulfillment spiritually that energizes us. And we get to experience that even when we have little or we have nothing, when we give out. Listen, when you and I give what God has given us, we will never be without. And it's not to say that all self-care is selfish. Because we also find examples in Scripture where Jesus himself goes to an isolated place. He, he models for us not only to, to give when we have little, but also to make sure that you know, we're spending time with the Lord and recharging our batteries, being refreshed in the Lord, and, and we need that. And so he modeled that as well. But maybe for the writer, the extent of compassion that the Hebrew Christians showed him was concern and prayer. Maybe even just an offer to help if, if needed. We, we don't know how that compassion was translated. Did they go to him? Did they write to him? You know, sometimes it can be just the smallest of things that have the biggest of impacts. Jesus said in, in recording in Matthew 10, 42, that even if you give a cup of cold water in my name to the least of these, you've done unto me. Sometimes I think we can be um, paralyzed or, or we don't take any action because we think, well, I don't have the resource, I can't help everybody. The need's too great. But I would say to you, maybe God hasn't called you to meet every need to, Sometimes we can just do for one what we want to do for many. And so it's trials then, and it's, it's these times where we're tested, become opportunities for you and for me to then be the hands and feet of Jesus to others. To love and to care and to show concern and compassion. And so they did that for him. And notice then he says, and they joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. 
knowing that you had a better and enduring possession for yourself in heaven. I read that and I think, man, that's hardcore. That's hardcore faith. They joyfully accepted the, the plundering, the loss of their stuff. This is another area where I'm convicted in. That's our last point, and I'll close here. Gang, possessions, right? they, they were okay with their stuff being taken. And, and possessions, and I'll add this, both the gain of them and the loss of them can also become a test as to what's going on in our heart. And, and, and it can test your affections. Do you remember the encounter between Jesus and the rich young ruler? Also in several of the Gospels, Matthew 19, Mark chapter 10. This guy comes to Jesus and says, hey, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, let me give a little test. Like, how do you understand the law? And he says, oh, I'm perfect. I've done all the law. I... And then Jesus kind of looks at him and says, okay, well, here's the thing that you lack. Here's the one thing. Go sell your stuff on Oki Yard Sales, our modern paraphrase. When you make that money, give it to the poor and then pick up your cross and come follow me and come hang out. And when that guy heard what Jesus said, we read he was grieved. He was saddened by the words of Christ. And here's the reason why we're told. Because he had a lot of stuff. And the idea is that he didn't want to get rid of it. His possessions, if you will, were his idol. They possessed him. You know, in the States, they have these bumper stickers. And I remember one of the bumper stickers, it read, um, he who dies with the most toys wins. You ever see that one? I used to think, that's so stupid. And someone else made another sticker that just said, he who dies with the most toys dies. <laughs> I go, that, that's, that's realistic. Over and over through the Gospels, Jesus cautions us about our affections, and specifically when it comes to money. And some even said he, Jesus probably taught more on money than any other topic. Because I think the Lord knows, man, we... Remember he says, you can't serve two masters. You can't serve mammon, money, and, and God. You're going to love one, you're going to despise the other. Paul says, be careful, the love of money. Not money in itself, right? Money in itself is just a tool, but the love of money is the root of all evil. And so sometimes God then will provide these tests to us. And they come in two ways. What happens in your heart when you're successful? What happens in your heart when you get blessed with a lot? You got the promotion that you wanted. You made the next rank. You're, you're at your savings level. What happens in your heart? Or what happens in your heart when you don't get it? When you lose stuff? You suffer the loss of something. It, it, it is a test for us. And again, I, I, I'm convicted. Well, you know, we have some friends who lost nearly all of their earthly possessions in a house fire. Some of you guys remember the Bevels, Bo and Taryn? our church for a number of years. They moved to Florida. A freak storm, lightning struck a tree, 
and it went through the roots underneath the house, and, and their whole house caught on fire. Like in the middle of the night. And so they, they escaped just, you know, the clothes on their back and their kids and their, I think their, their two dogs at the time, and praise the Lord. But they lost everything. Or some of you guys remember the Barrows? Andrew and, and um, Joanna? Several years ago, I think it was maybe even last year, remember when there was all those wildfires in California and Oregon? Like they, their house was one of those houses. Maybe you have friends or family too that you know, suffered that loss. I, I was so challenged by their perspective. That both families just said, ah, oh, it's just stuff. We can replace it. You know, the things that we value so greatly here, I think as the writer even brings their, how, how could they have joy? He says, because you know that you have a better and enduring possession in heaven. And, and that's a great perspective to hold on to, right? Because the things that we think, oh, this is so important, I'm going to make sacrifice for this pursuit. When we get to heaven, it's going to be nothing. And what brings a person to be able to joyfully accept the loss of all things? And it's the latter part of that verse that gives us the key. They knew their stuff was temporary. And heaven is forever. And Jesus would say, where your heart is, that's, or excuse me, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Therefore, store up your treasures in heaven. Invest in the bank of heaven. And there's a curious verse in in Revelation 21 we read where Jesus is going to wipe away every tear. No more pain, no more suffering. It's tremendously comforting. No more cancer, no more PCS, no more COVID. What a glorious day that's going to be. But why would we have tears in heaven? Now, it's a little bit of conjecture because John doesn't tell us when he writes that passage, when Jesus will wipe away every tear, but could it be that when we get to heaven and we then are in the fullness of joy in the presence of God, there's going to be a a, a sense of our rude awakening that we're going to realize how much time and energy and resources we wasted in the pursuit and the promotion, the protection of stuff that at the end just doesn't matter. How much energy we gave to that, how much worry we worry about things when ultimately it has no value, no eternal value. See, church family, we can know what they knew. And we hang on to that, to know that we have a better, a much better, everlasting possession, deposit, inheritance that's waiting for us in heaven. And in that, we also realize that God doesn't waste your pain. He will redeem it for our good. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, For our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that is far beyond comparison. So then we fix our eyes on that which is unseen, that which is eternal, that which is heavenward. 
and not which is seen, because what is seen, he says, is temporary. It's fading away. Paul writes in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Church family, we, we can let hard times and to know when they come that God uses them to build our faith, to strengthen our walk, that they help to reveal the areas that we need to strengthen, we need accountability, we need you know, someone to come alongside. We experience them in our social circles. We experience them in our friendships at times. But let them be the reminder for us that something better is promised and it's coming soon. That we wouldn't hold on to things so tightly. We wouldn't waste our time pursuing those things. Invest in the bank of heaven. Because compared to what's coming, what we go through, and I love that phrase, it's light and it's momentary, compared to eternal and forever of real value. Amen? Father, thank you for your word, a reminder, God, of hard truths, but good truths for us. We will go through hard times. And Lord, we thank you that the promise that you've given us isn't necessarily that you'll save us from them, but Lord, you'll save us in them and through them. That you'll walk with us, Lord, and you'll see us through. And so, Father, when we go through these things, may we see them for what they are designed to be, opportunities for us to grow, opportunities for us to grow stronger in our faith, Lord, to trust you, to put the full weight of our life upon you. You are faithful, Lord. God, thank you that you have, we have a better and enduring possession. And all of these things, when they happen, they're a reminder of that fact. This is not our home. Don't get so comfortable. And so, Lord, thank you. I pray you bless our church, bless our church family. May we walk in these truths. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a great day.